one of the fallouts of the coronavirus has been on how it has affected church meetings. Because the tradition is to go to church on Sunday. Now, we have seen certain ones who prefer to be arrested uh, in defying state law. In uh, uh, the documented cases in both Mississippi, uh, Louisiana and um, Florida, in which in one, in one case, a fellow named Rodney Howard Brown has been uh, arrested and, and charged with violation, viol various violations. And another fellow in Louisiana has been arrested as well. And um, they, their responses are very interesting to me um, because they immediately resort to their legal rights as citizens of a constitutional republic. And in, spe in specific reference, they refer to the First Amendment provision of religious freedom, which says Congress shall make no law regarding the uh, establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. Now, uh, I want to take just a moment and address that in terms of what is a legal right as such. But that's not the point of this message. I want to address a central question of whether or not meeting on Sundays is a biblically mandated uh, uh, command from God. I realize that we're, we're wading into the heart of this matter because it comes to the question of what actually is the church. Now, people are choosing to draw a line in the sand, as it were, and making this a test of faith. Now, when you do that, when you do that, you had better be sure that this is what the scriptures actually say. Otherwise, any claim to God's protection or even to doing the will of God in the matter is not only spurious, but you will get into serious trouble and God will not defend you on that basis. Obviously, the whole question of spreading the germ or spreading the, 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 the sickness is central to the issue. Should you go to church? Is there a biblical mandate to meet together in a building on Sunday to sing songs to God and to hear preaching that preempts the requirement of the law that you stay home and not become a center for the distribution of this virus. Now, so let's go back to the first question. Do you have an absolute right, according to the Constitution, First Amendment, do you have an absolute right to meet on Sundays? Well, it is clear that the Constitution speaks of these two clauses, the Establishment Clause and what is called the Free Exercise Clause. So on the one hand, uh, no body, no law-making or rule-making body, whether the Congress or the local zoning board, 
can make any law that favors one religion against another or over against another, number one. And number two, they should make no law regarding the free exercise of religion. However, there are other provisions in the constitution that clash directly with the right to exercise, uh, to have the free exercise of religion. And those, those issues relate to public health and safety. In other words, the Tenth Amendment to the US Constitution <clears throat> requires the government to act even to the suspension of constitutional rights, the First Amendment rights, where the health, safety and welfare of its citizens are concerned. Now in order to decide, in order to decide when the Tenth Amendment trumps another constitutional provision such as uh, the, the First Amendment's religious freedom and free exercise uh, clause of, that, of the First Amendment, there has to be a test that is followed. The judges have to apply a certain test. First, is there a compelling state interest? Is there a compelling state interest? Well, I, I think it's pretty obvious that there is a compelling state interest when you have a virus that is lethal and it's spreading exponentially. The government's right to actually legislate or in the executive branch to act for the health, safety and welfare of its, of its citizens clearly arises to the level of a compelling right and no one would challenge that in this environment. At least no one who understands uh, at least this much of constitutional analysis. Number one, you must establish, the state must establish that there is a compelling state interest because that's the requirement for triggering the Tenth Amendment health, safety and welfare powers of both the judiciary um, and the executive branch. Secondly, once you've established a compelling state interest, you must further establish that there is a, uh, a reasonable um, hope of accomplishing this compelling state interest through the means that you are proposing. But before that you have to establish that you're using the least restrictive means necessary. So when the church folks say, I have my constitutional right and it's an absolute blanket right to meet on Sundays, the answer is no, it's not absolutely a blanket right. The Tenth Amendment gives the authority to the states to act for the health, safety and welfare of its citizens. And the, it's easy enough for the, exec, for the executives of the state and even the federal government to prove that there's a compelling state interest in keeping you out of assemblies of more than say 10 people. So there's a compelling state interest. 
Second test, second element of the test is, uh, are you using the least restrictive means possible? The fact that there's a compelling state interest does not automatically mean that the state can do whatever it wants to. It is required to use the least restrictive means. And the third test is it must show that there's a reasonable connection between these means that are used and accomplishing the compelling state interest. So you can't just apply some arbitrary uh, um, format which amounts to more than, no more than the expansion of executive power in order to say under the pretext that because there's a compelling state interest uh, and that you can use whatever means you think up. You have to use the least restrictive means and you have to show on the state side that these means are reasonably related to the outcome. Right? Now, that's, that's one aspect of it and it shows how poorly informed preachers generally are about the idea of how the constitution actually works. No, you don't have an absolute right to meet every Sunday. Not if there are exigencies that trigger the Tenth Amendment's provision that require the state to act on behalf of all of its citizens, not just its church citizens. So if the church citizens pose a problem in, in the way that this virus is spreading, as to become that the church people in their church assemblies are coming to be a center for the distribution of the virus. The state has a compelling state interest. Now, shutting down uh, uh, churches is pretty well consistent with shutting down everything else except the most vital things. So for the church to say, this is the most vital thing. Meeting on Sundays is the most vital thing. We have a mandate from God. So this is not only divine mandate, uh, this is also uh, the freedom of expression of religion and it trumps everything else. Let's now bore into and look at and consider whether or not such a divine mandate does exist. The typical quote is from the book of Hebrews chapter 10 verse 25 which says, quote, not forsaking the assembling of yourselves, of ourselves together as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another and so much the more as you see the day approaching. That's, the, that's the, the gold standard. There's no other scripture more to the point of, that, of the argument of those who insist that there's a divine mandate for meeting on Sundays than this scripture. This is the epicenter of it. Now, <clears throat> just at first blush, reading the scriptures, Here's what it says, do not forsake the assembling of ourselves together as is the manner of some, All right? but exhorting one another 
and so much the more as you see the day approaching. Now this is typically interpreted in this way, exhort each other during the week to come together on Sunday and along about Thursday or Friday you turn up the volume of your exhortation because Sunday is around the corner because the implication for them is, and so much more as you see the day approaching, they think that means Sunday. Now what's also true is whatever this assembling that is spoken of here means, it is against a day when an assembling is complete. Now just on that level alone, and we have many levels to go with this, to show it, to expose what this scripture means because it's been used as the line in the sand, foolishly in my estimation, because the ones advocating it simply do not know what it's talking about, but they hold it up as the very essence of a divine mandate that requires them to meet together on Sunday. Now if they're wrong in this, at this time in the world, that error is dangerous to the population and the population will not forgive you if you become a spread, a center for the spread of this virus. Moreover, it already seems to the population in general that this is a ridiculous and absurd notion that no matter what, in these environments you must meet on Sunday. In fact, the fellow in Louisiana quoted on CNN, uh, quoted the scripture that says, we must obey God rather than man. So he's staking everything on his understanding of what the scripture says. Part of what God is doing in this time is he's bringing everything into the light. And the things that people have been so dogmatic about are being brought up to be examined as well. I say to you, judgment has begun at the house of God. And part of this judgment, not the only aspect of it, is that which requires accuracy in our doctrines. It's no longer a matter of quoting scripture and getting a pass, you have to be accurate. So, in the normal reading, in the regular go to church on Sunday meeting argument, based on the scripture, it's saying don't forsake coming together on Sundays, as some people do. But the duty among the people of that order is to exhort or to encourage, call people up, email them, text them, exhorting one another, all the more and so much the more, all the more as you see Sunday coming. That's, 
That's it. There's, there's not another argument. That's it. All right, now I want to go forward and read a little bit more because that is not a standalone verse. That's verse 25. Verse 26 says, For if we sin willfully, for means it's connected to the foregoing, because if we sin willfully, after we receive the knowledge of the truth, there remains no longer a sacrifice for sin, but a certain fearful expectation of judgment and fiery indignation which will devour the adversaries." It goes on from there, whoever rejected Moses' law died without mercy under two or three witnesses. Of how much worse punishment, suppose you, he would be thought worthy who was trampled underfoot the Son of God and counted the blood of the covenant wherewith he was sanctified an unholy thing and insulted the Spirit of grace. For we know him who says, Vengeance is mine and I will repay, says the Lord, and again the Lord will judge his people, and it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Wow! All of that because you didn't go to church on Sunday. I'll show you again, because they stopped conveniently short, because that interpretation of the Scriptures makes no sense, because it considers not going to church on Sunday a willful sin taken after we've received the knowledge of the truth and it puts us beyond the sacrifice of Christ. There remains no longer a sacrifice for sin. So if you don't come to church on Sundays, a willful sin of this magnitude, you've put yourself beyond the ability of the sacrifice of Christ to cover you, the death on the cross. And now all you've got to look forward to is a certain fearful expectation of judgment and fiery indignation which will devour the adversary, which is what you've become if you don't go to church on Sundays. You see, these people are cowardly. They don't stand by their conviction. None of them would agree that this is so for not going to church on Sunday but they use the verse conveniently to get people to come to church on Sunday. So my view is, look, if that's your reading, this is the context. Stay with your conviction, otherwise go home. You're not correct. This is not the interpretation. And then comparing not coming to church on Sunday with someone who rejected Moses' law. So we now make coming to church on Sunday Christian law. And you died without mercy under two or three witnesses. So if two or three witnesses under the law of Moses alleged you didn't do something that you should have done or you did something that you should not have done, then you died without mercy under the law. 
So if two or three people can testify that you didn't come to church on Sunday, you, you are one who is ready to have a worse punishment, verse 29, of how much worse punishment do you suppose because at that juncture, not coming to church on Sunday, you've trampled underfoot the Son of God. I mean, it gets more ridiculous by the moment. To, that you, by not coming to church on Sunday, you've trampled underfoot the Son of God and you've counted the blood of the covenant which, which you are sanctified, an unholy thing. And you've insulted the Spirit of grace. All of which means that the vengeance of the Lord will, will visit you and it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God and you are in deep trouble. Now, you can't separate the two from each other because of the word for. So it says, do not forsake the assembling of yourselves together as a manner of some is, but exhorting one another and so much the more as you see Sunday coming, for if you sin willfully. Now is that what that scripture means? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. So let's plow into it. The word for assembling, assembling, is the word epi, E-P-I, sonagogo, S-U-N-A-G-O-G-E, epi, synagogo. And that's the word found here in Hebrews 10.25, epi, synagogo. And it references a day, and so much the more as you see the day approaching. Now, witless teachers have made that day Sunday. It is not, because there's another place where the same word episynagogo occurs that tells us about what day he's talking about and would then speak of a very different form of assembling. Come with me to the book of 2 Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 at verse 1. Now here, now brethren concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our episynagogue, gathering together to Him, we ask not to be soon shaken in mind or troubled either by spirit or by word or by letter as if from us as though the, the, the day of Christ has come. Let no one deceive you by any means for that day will not come unless the falling away occurs first and the man of sin is revealed, the son of perdition, who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped, 
so that he sits in the temple of God, etc. Here, the word episynagogo, the exact word for assembling together, as is used in Hebrews 25, is the word that is used here and it specifies what the day is and it's not Sunday. It is not Sunday. It is the day of the return of the Lord. So the episynagogue, gathering together, that is the assembling not in a church building somewhere, but of the assembling of the body of Christ into the corporate man against the day when the return of the Lord is due. And on that day, the bride and the Spirit will be in one mind, and it will be the mind of the Spirit. And the bride and the Spirit will say to the Lord Jesus Christ, Come Lord Jesus, and it will be so. He will come. So no, it is not Sunday. Now, I am not arguing against people meeting on Sundays or meeting anytime they want to, but I am telling you there is no biblical mandate for meeting on Sundays. There is not. And if you insist on one, hoping to have divine protection in the process, do not be surprised if the churches become epicenters of this virus because God will not protect us in our stupidity. It's time for these preachers to grow up and release the people. You see, we are the body of Christ. It's not a building. The building is not the house of God because the house of God is a multi-generational family. And people know that, but the preachers will take the shortcut and the convenience of the shortcut to get people to sit in the pews. And most of the time, most of the time it's about money and it's about their own personal stature and identity. Because if the people are not there, then who are they? The alternative is households, organic functioning households overseen by spiritual fathers, not institutions. Now in the next broadcast I want to tell you how we got here because of the reference to Sinugago, how the church when it passed through the order of the Roman Empire began to meet in church buildings because the empire gave them church buildings, but before that they met from house to house. And you can do that anytime, and you, and it's, but it's not a mandate from God, it's not a divine mandate. We do not have to meet in order to be the people of God because meeting is not a substitute for relationships nor is meeting the basis of relationships. In this time, brethren, in this time, God is rewriting the script and every nonsensical thing that has been used to imprison the people of God is being thrown down. And when it's done, 
we'll see a very new and different order, much like it was in the beginning. I'm Sam Solon, we'll talk more on this subject, bye-bye.